Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 68 of the podcast, the topic is industrial-grade mixed reality. Our guest is Uro Kuntori, co-founder and chief product officer of Vario, the mixed reality equipment maker. In this conversation, we talk about the future of industrial-grade mixed reality, or MR. We talk about the advent of enterprise AR, VR, XR, MR, and or hybrid reality and its impact on RR, or real reality. Which companies are using it already? Current professional user types and emerging use cases. And why is Vario so focused on human eye resolution devices and high-res MR? We discuss adoption timelines and form factors, as well as remaining technical and market challenges. We look into the future of mixed reality five to ten years ahead. Urho, how are you today? I'm really good. It's been a fantastic day here in Helsinki. And, and yeah, about to uh, take it off for the rest of the day soon. All right, Duro. So I'm super excited to be talking about uh, all things uh, future with you. Um, you are now working for Vario, but you, your, your background includes working for very large software and, and hardware companies, including Microsoft, I believe, and uh, definitely Nokia. Yeah. Uh, you are out of uh, University of Helsinki with a degree in algorithms. Um, I wanted to ask you this. You are now sort of at the forefront of all things augmented. Hmm. But, um, you know, back in the uh, 80s when you were growing up, what, what was it that turned you on to algorithmic thinking and, and, and I guess, uh, visualization, which you, 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 you know, I moved into? Yeah, well, typical things uh, to the computer. So I was playing games. I had an Atari, uh, Atari game console when I was, I don't know, something like... Uh, six, seven years old, and that's kind of like we were gathering around with uh, the kids from the block uh, and play games with it, and that's kind of like get me got me started on the track and then moving into the Commodores and, and the demo scene of Finland, and plenty of my, uh, my uh, dearest friends were also very much into computers, so that kind of like pushed quite naturally me to the, to the uh, computer science track originally. I, I did so much coding in my like twenties, and and obviously before that one as well, but uh, but mostly in the twenties, and then moved to to more man- managerial roles, I suppose in my in my times. But you got hungry for entrepreneurship, huh? Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things that um, I, I I was in my twenties working in smaller uh, smaller companies, but mostly in a, like a consultant type of companies making uh, solutions, you know, these kind of like uh, web solutions that everybody was doing in the 90s and 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 in the beginning of 2000. Super interesting stuff. I mean, I, I did uh, two stock exchange systems, uh, well, led the teams doing those and did uh, half of Europeans green energy certification systems and and like super exciting things but really you were always just following somebody else's guidance what you should be doing and and then um that kind of like leaves you of course hungry to do something yourself and i have been doing 
um, uh, some computer games with my friends, and that was, of course, like you know, this kind of escapism from what you you must do uh, and going into whatever, do whatever you please and and make it yours. And never made any money with those, but it was super cool. And I think that's more of a like a seed for this kind of uh, startup mindset, doing doing demos, doing technologically challenging things for. No particular reason whatsoever. And then when you go to the bigger companies, you realize that if you actually do something properly, you can change the world. So combine those two together and, and you start to be in the startup space. So do whatever you want as long as it changes the world was our mindset when we formed uh, from Wario. I like that. And and now you are indeed in the position that you can not just take guidance from others, but you can guide us. And and my first question <clears throat> to kick us off is is really this. The 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 current situation in in this space, and, and we'll map this space out, is that first off, there's an enormous amount of acronyms that really are kind of confusing. They're even confusing, certainly to me. Um, can you clear up some of those for me? And I'm gonna list up a couple of them. And then I just want you to try to explain really quickly if they all are the same, if they're sort of changing, what, what is really important about them. So ARVR is a typical kind of distinction, but then MR and XR, and then you can, you know, if you spell them out, right? So augmentation, augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, extended reality. And, and let's just start with those. Let's do it. give me a sense... All right, Duro, take it off. <laughs> okay, so augmented reality is when you wear eyeglasses or alike that you can see through, and then you're adding some things into your visual field of view. Super great when you, for example, let's say that you're a uh, UPS courier. You want to be able to know where you need to take the package. You might be driving on the vehicle. You see all, all through the reality, and then you get that information overlay. It's like what you used to have in the um, uh, airplane cockpits where you had this heads-up display where you see through that one, and it has everything that the pilot really needs to be aware at all the times. And that's kind of the thing that's happening now with augmented reality, so making it so that you can actually get that information overlay of the most important important things and still keep it wearable. And really, for augmented reality, it must be really wearable, really lightweight, and uh, feel like they're a pair of eyeglasses. All right. Well, we're obviously going to go into more, more depth. So, that, so that's sort of your, your quick sort of kitchen sink definition <laughs> of, of augmented. Virtual reality now. Yeah. Um, I'm presuming that is a more of a full immersion type situation. Yeah, yeah of course. So virtual reality, you block the whole world like the world around you doesn't exist anymore. That's like black. And then you start recreating that world into whatever you please. And that's the virtual reality. So computer completely generates everything that you should see here. And of course, even up to the point of feeling. And that's the like the ultimate goal of virtual reality where you cannot tell apart that. Am I actually in real world, which is really weird? Or is this a virtual reality? And before we go to there. the ne next ones, um, are, are these two in any way directly related when it comes to the companies that are doing it? We'll, we'll, you know, we'll talk about the companies later, but mm. are, are these two things as related as they seem when we say AR, VR, or are they actually quite 
distinct when it comes to business models, people working on it, use cases, everything? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question, and it's it's like again, as you pointed out, these terms are really loaded, and and it's uh, they don't have like a very uh, static definition. And uh, I would say that as long as you talk about AR the way that I described it, so that it's mostly information overlay, it's quite this different from the virtual reality. But if we go to the mixed reality, which is all about that you can see some parts of the real world as they are, some of the things could be altered, and then some of these things could be completely virtual. I think it's more of this... Um, uh, angle that with augmented reality, you might be able to do uh, everything that uh, virtual reality devices can do if you block also the real world completely. Then it becomes a virtual reality device. On the other hand, with the virtual reality device, if you do it the way that we do, for example, which is that we also digitize the world in real time, and then we can manipulate it and then uh, mix it so that certain things are real, certain things have been changed, and certain things are completely virtual. It's this um, approach that if you start from augmented reality, um, uh, you, you are basically uh, needing to replace the world uh, in front of the user, uh, and, and the world is the foundation. If you start from virtual reality, everything is black and you need to add everything. And, uh, can and I ask you a dumb question around that, Danuro? Does that mean that it's kind of a gradual scale where mm. <clears throat> in mixed reality, the product, the point is that you don't know from the outset in the product or maybe even the journey that the user goes through. You know, one Monday you were doing 70% mixed and then on Tuesday you're doing 30% mixed and you're kind of the product allows you the flexibility or is it very very decided from the beginning that it's given amount of mix of virtual and augmentation or yeah. unreal I think that's the place we're now so augmented reality devices are very little bit is augmented and virtual reality everything is virtual but in the upcoming years those will be mixing so with augmented reality devices more and more will be augmented and with virtual reality devices you can bring more and more of the real world into your experience and eventually in theory they will have a sweet middle point where you can do the same thing with both devices but uh, you might be at slightly better off if you start from this end of the spectrum than this end of the spectrum for one or the other thing. All right so let's just get done with this extended reality is that distinct from mixed? I don't quite understand how that could be so different from mixed. I mean, extended meaning it's better than what? Than real life? Yeah, I suppose you could say that uh, extended could be that, for example, you can see in the dark. So if you start with this assumption that you digitize the world, then you can extend it with uh, thermal imaging. You can extend it with infrared cameras. And then it becomes so this is the more. Superman angle. The yeah. Superman angle. This is turning us into kind of extrasensorial be beings uh, su super with superpowers. Absolutely. And then maybe AI analyzes everything for you. And, and when you look at the um, uh, uh, sandbox, you can tell that there are 52 million grains of sand in here. <laughs> Whatever. Right, which would be difficult to count. Yes. Um, so, so why don't you then give us a little bit of a sense of, because this field has had a lot of play, and, and, and we don't, we're not going to dismiss play, because we know computer games and play and, and experimental 
uh, headsets and everything, there there was a place for that. But I will admit readily that I have, through the years, tried many of these, and I'm sort of like scratching my head. When is this going to get really serious? So you either have the attitude of, you know, I'm I'm an early adopter. I like to you know do these things, and it's nice. The advent of sort of enterprise or industrial grade, hmm. um, you know, all of these abbreviations. Uh, when did that start to happen? And you know, maybe you'll give us a sense of what you know what your position is in in, in this space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think um, from my point of view, when we look at the very early days of the VR, the NASA experiences, uh, and and the like early days of eighties and nineties uh, of VR, that's when it was certain very individual companies. Uh, trying to basically change the way they were working back in those days. For, for example, NASA doing uh, designs inside virtual reality and uh, with multiple companies starting the, like aiming to do simulations uh, within the virtual reality. All of that one ended up in the cave systems after that one, like a, uh, an alternative way of achieving the same thing because it was the shorter goal at that stage. And I'd say that after that one, there was, of course, uh, a long, uh, long autumn for VR throughout the 90s and, and 2000s early on until the... Not a winter, but, a, but an autumn. Yeah, like keeping it slightly alive. But but uh, but yeah, uh, and, and then of course Oculus reinvigorated it with the consumer message. Now what, what happened at that stage is that it also created the interest into, into utilizing this again for these uh, high very demanding industrial use cases that the guys were trying to do in the 80s and early 90s. The thing is that the devices were not good enough in the 80s and 90s. Computers weren't good enough to actually create experiences, but the displays were roughly the same quality as Oculus actually shipped. And then, of course, later on the HTC Vibes and so forth. So the image quality, the lenses, these sort of experiences were almost on the same level but it was never good enough. And that was the thing that we started to solve when we founded Vario, which was, of course, coming with the background of working at Microsoft and Nokia. And, and like I made like a dozen phones and, and many other types of devices, including VR headset there. And you know that if you go as a startup against uh, existing consumer electronics giants, uh, you really shouldn't be playing on the same field as they are. So from right. our point of view, we thought that, okay, our angle into this one will be to change how these most difficult cases are sold because that was the area that also had financial sense in the 80s and 90s. So it should have the same financial sense now. Then we started touring the companies, understanding their challenges, understanding the potential. And, and it's, it's unbelievable when you do VR in the quality level that it needs to be, which is at the human eye resolution. It doesn't need to get any better than that. So if you can simulate everything that you see with the same accuracy in, in real world, then you can charge 
to change the way that people do training, you don't need, need any more expensive equipment. You just put the glasses on and you start training because that way you're training to the real world, which is will always have the same fidelity for everybody. And, and uh, the same way, of course, for the design. And these were the two areas of the 80s and 90s that people were trying to tackle. And um, it's, it's one of those interesting anecdotes. So does it actually make sense? Um, Boeing, for example, told us that with our systems compared to traditional way of training in these kind of full dome simulators, it takes roughly four hours to pay back the investment into this uh, professional grade VR that we are offering. After so, that uh, one, after yeah. that one, it's only benefit for everybody. So. So uh, that's super interesting. We'll go into the use cases in a second, but I, I just want want you to stop a little more at what it took for you guys to make that step towards mm -hmm. sort of eye uh, human eye resolution uh, grade. One of the things with these headsets, whether it's uh, you know kind of an augmentation view or or a full VR kind of point of view, is they they have been historically well one quite clunky, and um, tell me what it took to get. And, and how, how long ago was it that you sort of achieved this human eye level resolution? Because some of these earlier uh, headsets weren't really there, were they? No. So basically, we founded the company in 2016. And, and we started working on this topic immediately. Um, so at that stage, uh, the consumer-grade VR headsets like Oculus and HTC Vive, they were roughly 40 times away from uh, the kind of quality that you need for the human eye resolution. So 40x was the difference. Now it's roughly 20x uh, difference. So still far way to go for the consumer-grade uh, devices. Now, uh, for us, it was really weird because when we founded the company, it was founded on a demo of video see-through cameras strapped in front of an Oculus Quest. The pitch was basically that if we do video see-through based mixed reality, where we digitize the world and then we're in full control of everything that the user sees and we can twist it exactly the way that we want. Vario, by the way, means shadow because shadow is impossible to be done with these optical see-through systems like HoloLens. So it's one of those funny things. So shadow can be created when you can just add black, aka shadow. So, uh, so we were showcasing these to to the one single potential investor, and and they said that wow, this is really great. Could you actually do like an add-on like this to uh, devices like Quest and uh, devices like uh, Oculus and and to HTC Vive? And we were like, yeah, we could probably do that one in like a half a year to a year. Then we had the discussion: how much money? Million. So, can you have the team in a Weeks time, we were sure. That was me and Nico Aiden, uh, and uh, uh, in the meeting originally. Good. So then, when we actually are able to start, which is like a couple of months later, having the rents and the uh, uh, equipment ready and so forth, we start scratching our heads. So, if we actually have this poor quality of the displays, uh, it's never going to be an interesting experience. It's like super cool gimmick, but 
this is not the thing that will change the way that people use computers and, and the way that people would be training or designing, which is something that we believe strongly that we need to be in. And it's a and and we will never create a business out of this. So doing a bit of math, maybe we can sell twenty thousand units at like two hundred a pop. Like wow, we didn't make any money out of this, but we made, wasted the million. So uh, then came the question that uh, how can we actually do this into a good enough level? What is good enough level? And then of course that resulted in a human eye resolution where we can basically. Uh, simulate everything and change everything the same way as you would uh, in real life if you would just be able to change everything magically. That's that's a, a place where we want to be in, so like a need rising from there. And that's, of course, the mother of all invention. Once you have a need, once you have like a strong feel that this must be solved somehow, then you can wa- find a way. And uh, that's Uro, what we did. I, I mean, I'm scratching my head again. And, you know, I've worked with thousands of startups, you know, uh, and, and I scratch my head every time I hear this story because how is it possible that, you, you know, you have these massive providers that have headsets yeah. that have a certain quality? And is it just because they have, they assess the market to not be needing to go to the level that you mm-hmm. now are? How is it possible that you could come at a left? Well, you know, you weren't at a left field. You know, you obviously had worked in the same size companies and you had a little money. Innovation doesn't take uh, as much as one assumes, does it? Because you were in a couple of years able to produce a device that not only matched, but superseded the industrial quality of obviously with some cost to the device itself for now. Yeah. But how, how is just just explain it to me. Just do it. How is it possible? So, so this 2016 20, is not that far far ago, not that long ago. Yeah. So it's it's all about that. You need to change the game. You need to change the rules. So, when you are in the consumer devices business, uh, oftentimes when you kick off anything in there, somebody high level up goes and says, "This thing, whatever is it, it's that you're doing, will cost one ninety nine. It needs to be ready in one and a half years." And now go and do it. And then, of course, like a lot of things have been set in stone at that stage. And, so and the design constraints are yeah. stopping otherwise smart people from doing what they... Because presumably there are really smart people. I mean, you were working in a large organization. Yeah. I don't know if you got smarter, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah. There are smart people in these same organizations, yet given some of these design constraints, they end up with not mediocre products, but just not as good as one can do in this breakout play. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I did one uh, product to only once to, to low-end uh, devices at Microsoft, so these cheap devices. And, and it was funny how we were arguing that um, the RAM in this product would cost uh, 30 cents to have doubled the amount of RAM that we have in it now. And if we don't put it, it's going to be so that you can basically only run the default applications on the uh, on the phone, and pretty much nothing else that you could download from the store. And can we pretty please increase the price of the like end product by two euros? No, it is what it is. So then that product had like this completely illogical, silly thing that limited it so that it was almost useless uh, as a smartphone. It was just a phone. 
and and when you are in the large organizations, you need to be tackling quite often things like this, and it it certainly limits the innovations a lot. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into some of the use cases that you guys have right now in Vario, and we'll talk about some other companies as well. But what companies are using your headsets and your your approaches right now? I mean, you we in the prep, I, I you know, or you already actually talked about the automotive use case a little bit. Give yeah. us a sense of how, I guess two, Volvo or Audi, whichever you want to pick, how are they now using uh, this technology? Yeah, so so yeah, it's like uh, almost all of the car companies are our customers at the moment. And, and the thing is that, uh, uh, for example, car design side, like many other industries, is um, one of the areas where everybody is following one uh, paradigm at a time. So uh, in there, everybody uses Katia from Dassault to do the CAD models. Everybody uses uh, Team Center from Siemens to integrate the models together and all the pieces uh, of the car into one singular, singular entity. And, and manage all that complexity of all of the pieces. And then they use Autodesk's VRED to do all of the visualizations from the very beginning of the car's concepting process, where you still start quite often with just drawing, drawing those first sketches on the paper, and then you do the first 3D models. You're visualizing those throughout the process with the VRED, and all the way to the point that you're deciding where will the stitches be in the car seat. So into that kind of like incredibly fine detail, and into how do the... Uh, uh, how do the flakes look in the car paint? So how deep is going to be the paint layer? How much varnish is going to be there? All of those kind of things tend to be made uh, quite early on and and rendered with the V-Reds. And uh, these days, what they do is that they look at the models uh, almost predominantly with Vario headsets. So that allows them to skip a lot of the old laborious process of making uh, like clay models of the cars that need to be painted and then varnished. And then you uh, look at the, those flakes, how they look like. And this process could easily be like a couple of weeks. And you're looking at the contours and the uh, shapes of the car and the lead designer goes like, let's try to do something a bit more aggressive. So fine polish this one and do this and this and that. And suddenly again, a couple of weeks passes and then you're reviewing again, costs a ton. Whereas with the VR processes, you're basically able to evaluate it instantly. And what has happened now with the COVID is that nobody's able to travel. So the car industry is very distributed area and you have a lot of locality for the design process. So the same car will look different in the American market and in the European market and in the in Japan and Korea and so forth. They're always localized. So you have you have always local design teams making sure that it's it's optimized for each particular uh, region. And uh of course, previously, what they did is that they were flying every month back to the HQ, do the design reviews, align the designs, and uh, of course, not something that you really love, like going for a week away from your family and so forth. And again, the iteration cycle being really slow. Now, what they're doing with our headset is that they can have that 
perfect image quality when they do the internal reviews uh, within the like a, a few designers of a car. And then also the HQ reviews are now happening. For example, Kia has completely switched from travel. They use our headsets at the HQ in Korea and in uh, Germany. They are meeting every single week, aligning the decisions, designs, and they're seeing each other uh, in the mixed reality around the car, able to have completely natural conversations. And how they put it is that it's actually easier to set up than a Zoom call, which is telling you something uh, already. And I do see that this is also one of those areas where, again, the most demanding customers who have the most to gain are spearheading these technologies and really enabling all of the ecosystem to grow and solve difficult problems like this. And what's happening next is, this, is that it scales to everybody. Just like uh, these video calls you need, it used to be a luxury like uh, 15 years ago, and now we're all doing that one. It's the same thing happening with the, with the VR technologies, with the mixed reality technologies. These spearheading companies developing the process, making it easy to use, and then once it's, once it's good enough, then it scales. And I think we start to be like uh, within a few years that we start seeing those scaling steps, not only happening in the consumer side, but also in the professional domain. Can you, this is fascinating, can you take me through uh, at least one more scenario? And we'll move to training in a second because that's really where the, where the scaling, you know, mm. uh, can truly happen for, for, for a much larger group. But Take me through the uh, Boeing example where you're actually training astronauts to dock at the International Space Station. Now, I understand they haven't docked yet, but they have been training for a, is it a November docking they're going to do this? Give, give me a sense of, because that sounds pretty real to me. I mean, and, and talk about high stakes and, and costly mm. operations, but... Uh, uh, you know, that's not just, you know, everyday training. This uh, space station weighs 420 tons. Yeah, and, and I cannot even imagine how costly it has been to build it. And yet you're basically leaving it in the hands of a few individual, few astronauts who need to maintain and make sure that everything is fine. And uh, of course, those are like the most critically trained people in the world. And it's super comforting seeing again that VR is the technology used to train these people who have the like most to lose uh, in the world which is their lives whenever they go on on the flight to the space if they don't uh, work as they were trained to do if the training isn't good enough then they could lose their lives they could even lose the uh, space station if they uh, do things uh, completely wrongly. So it's, Right, so there's two stakes there. I mean, one is obviously any individual life, but yeah. the additional stake is that space station is not like crashing a car. I mean, it, you know, joking aside, that's a very, very big deal. That space station has been built over years with money from, from you know, a lot of yeah. sources. So. Yeah. And this is the reason that NASA was using VR already like in the 80s and 90s or trying to use it. It wasn't good enough. They kept on iterating on that one, improving. And now we're seeing that uh, Boeing is actually doing the, doing the training of the pilots 
with the VR, uh, first and foremost, and also very suitable to these um, these times of of uh, COVID, when the pilot, uh, the astronauts might not be able to be in the same place at the same time all the time. And this is what uh, Boeing is doing. They are doing the training remotely, so. Uh, two, three astronauts might be in a completely different place physically, yet they're able to have uh, the collaborative training sessions every day. And again, like uh, this is the future of the collaboration and really group training is the way that we need to be working in the future as well. And, and when you can do it whenever is the most suitable and not so that everybody needs to reserve certain time slots and fly away to faraway places to do the training. That's when you can have much better results than, than with the old ways. So I, I want to move to the future in a second, but just before that, how, how do you define and see? So we, we've been through these different distinctions, but you know, how would you describe or, or how do industry analysts, more rather, describe the market that you're in now? And w- what is the market size? I, I saw one report recently, fairly recently, mm. I guess a year ago, not so recently, actually, because everything has changed, that said the global AR and VR market size was $11.35 billion in 2017. And then, you know, obviously they have some growth projections. Uh, so, so those are actually already quite, uh, you know, old numbers because Vario was barely even there. Uh, when, when their their first number came into play, uh, what is the size of this market right now? Yeah, so so it's it's like you have so many uh, so many numbers for this as you have analysts. So it's a uh, very very different from um, from analyst to analyst point of view. And how how we are basically seeing is that uh, we're looking into a few billion market at the moment uh, annually for the devices market and uh, most of that one is of course consumer devices so when we look at the professional devices uh, it's one of the interesting uh, things is to look at it domain by domain which is something that we've been doing from the get-go like trying to do the numbers as much bottom up as possible and as little through this uh, like um, high-level analytics uh, top-down approaches. So, so for example, looking into architecture as a singular example, there are two million architecture agencies in the Europe alone. Uh, certainly, not all of those will be turning into VR uh, adverts uh, in a, in a short while, but. Eventually, this is also one of those technologies where you, like each individual architect, will benefit greatly. If not in their design process, at the very least, when they need to show and and visualize a concept to their customers. If you show it with VR, they will know exactly what they're going to get. And typically, it's the customers are not able to imagine how the buildings will look like just from the like draft sketches. Uh, but when you can actually be there, see it then you can have an interesting dialogue also and make it better for the customers. Hmm. Then looking into can- the simulations market very quickly. So um, it's it's projected uh, that the simulations uh, market in aviation alone will be roughly billion uh, in 2024 and it's going to be in the range of like 0.7 billion in 23 half a billion in 22 so this is one of the areas that again we start with these spearheading companies our customer base has like boeings and and uh um uh, Airbuses, uh, Lockheed Martins, and a lot of governmental agencies and and uh, armies uh, and and so forth. 
in in as as our customers, and and. That's the area that we're seeing a very rapid growth at the moment. And uh, cases that started a year ago in 2019, we had like cases of like, yay, this customer has a 10 unit deal. Turning into the beginning of this year, we started having like hundreds of units deals. And now we're looking and discussing of thousands of units deals with uh, some customers. So it's like you see this trend going very quickly when uh, first you have had the experiments with the labs and these uh, first trials on, on how to train people in VR. And then once those are successful, then moving into like a small scale deployments and then now also to large scale deployments. And this is the thing happening throughout the aviation industry. Again, one of those like spearheading verticals for us. Um, I had a, a guy on who's a robotics uh, professional saying that COVID turned an enormous amount of demo projects into real life implementation projects going from kind of, yeah, in a few months we might be testing, you know, one device uh, to the next conversation is we are rolling out. This is not a demo and we need a hundred devices and they need to be there essentially next Friday, you know? Yeah. Have you experienced something similar? Yeah, a little bit. At the same time, we had a bit of, uh, 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 also, reluctance from uh, some of the bigger companies, especially in the beginning of this uh, situation in, in May, June area, where a lot of companies started having a CFO-driven uh, R&D. So uh, uh, the coffins were starting to get closed. And, and even if you could show that, hey, we could actually still do some of the things better if we would move to the uh, virtual uh, segments. Um, you couldn't do that one because the uh, like saving money was the top priority. It was for some companies existential to to cut the cost. So it was totally understandable. Uh, yet, for example, uh, in the defense sector, when the world gets more uh, difficult, uh, all of the budgets only grow. So it has been mm -hmm. one of those uh, highlights for us throughout the year. Um, your current pricing starts at. 5,000, and then you have a, a, a pro device that's another 1,000, and then your developer edition is 10,000. Mm -hmm. What is your sort of prediction in terms of what's going to happen to you know, your and other devices that are starting to get industrial grade, but also in the consumer market? Because, I mean, it's uh, kind of anybody's guess, but you know, a consumer device, right? The, the high end of a consumer device is would be the Apple iPhone, I guess. Mm. Uh, you know, in any sort of comparable scenario, because I, I don't think PCs can be com completely compared to this. But you know, people are willing to pay a, a bunch of money for an iPhone, but it of course has hundreds of different uh, of functions, and you can put it in your pocket. Yeah. Where do you see the price going for the various grades? Let, let's call it crudely an industrial quality device, you know, as we move, you know, year by year into the next decade versus a consumer device, uh, you know, as we move year by year, what, how drastic could the price drops be? Or, or even in the industry, I mean, are we talking, you need to make such quality improvements that the devices will largely, do you think, stay at that price range? Yeah, I, I think as long as the consumer devices are 
mainly used for gaming. It's going to be set into similar price point as the console games uh, consoles are these days. So like a sweet spot being roughly at the 300 bucks and and uh, like a really scale up opportunity being at the 200 bucks range. But those are when you do it only for this uh, one particular niche and the opportunity on doing the more expensive and thus higher quality devices lies in that you start to be able to do the work also with these devices. And that's, of course, our bet. We believe that the uh, bigger change in the way that we all work in the future will be coming from the virtual reality and mixed reality devices and that this immersive computing will become the fourth computing paradigm at some point. And that allows us to look at the price points of like thousand bucks being a very interesting price point for professional use cases, for example. And then in, on the expert level, do you think that uh, there are gonna there are still improvements at the high end that will uh, be so mind blowing that it will defend and uh, defend a very very high price point also for some time to come? I mean, are there? Are there massive breakthroughs, you know, beyond human eye, you know, into this uh, extended reality type situation where there will be demand, you know, in automotive or, or in aerospace, that kind of use case? Are, are you eyeing breakthroughs of the magnitude that will defend, uh, you know, very, very uh, new types of functionalities in, in this space as well? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, there's always the uh, place for these uh, super high-end devices that, uh, that are uh, um, a few years ahead of everything that you could do with the more, uh, more moderate price point. So I don't think that's going to disappear, but then um, price erosion is always happening and um, and that's where you have to watch out Uro because you guys yeah. are rapidly becoming a, an industry in and of yourself you know the moment a startup becomes successful there are some other smart guys coming out of the woodworks absolutely absolutely and and this is this is the place where it uh, starts getting interesting for us so having been able to define that yes this kind of extremely high quality mixed reality is a real market we actually are doing quite well in there that's when you start seeing that somebody else starts looking, oh, there's actually a market in there, so maybe we should be there as well. Yeah, that's so true. But at the moment, it's still um, uh, it's it's very different type of competition than the big uh, big boys for the reason that these markets are still too small for the Googles and Microsofts to go uh, for. When we start looking into the small and medium-sized businesses, that's that's the that's the big uh, play in the two to three years' time, I believe, and and certainly something that we want to also be participating in. Hmm. We have this framework uh, that we use here at uh, the Futurized uh, podcast on on all these different types of disruption forces. We have addressed technology fairly deeply. We have also talked about COVID, which is kind of an environmental mm. left field type of thing that sort of comes in. Um, can you talk to me about some of the other forces that are on my mind always, which is policy and regulation or even just business model plays? 
that mm. where where things come in and and where you just find a completely different angle or w- what are some of the emerging issues that you think governments are going to have to face in this in this particular market what what should they be doing what are they doing yeah i think uh the thing that we have been discussing with the people's privacy in the web when they're uh, scouting the websites, getting cookies, getting tracked, and then who is actually knowing you better than you're, you're knowing yourself. It's, it's one of the areas that when you take this kind of thinking into the mixed reality where you can not only uh, see the direction that people are looking, but you see the eyes, what, uh, where the eyes are looking at each, uh, each second, each uh, smallest saccade, uh, it's completely like reading people's minds. You certainly understand people's political opinions so well. Just by showing a, one image, uh, you can uh, tell how people are reacting to the, to the people in this image and, and the amount of, of uh, categorization of people you can do from something like this is incredible. I, I do think that uh, and, and hope that we start seeing a little bit more of a proactive approach from governments in here as well. Because if you do it reactively, it typically tends to be a quite, quite bad solution. But if you do it proactively and start involving also the industries ahead of time, before they actually start making the mistakes, I think we would have better policies when it comes to the privacy. And of course, like overall, like accounts uh, being a hot topic now, this is only becoming more complicated when we start having the eye tracking and like galvanic skin response sensors on the headsets and and ECGs and so forth. Uh, it's it's a whole new level of privacy concerns uh, waiting to happen. Well, and on the other side, I know that you guys took some uh, Horizon 2020 funding from the EU, uh, yeah. which you told me were, were pretty crucial, actually. Uh, so that's on the other end, right? Governments, uh, uh, at least some governments uh, and, and organizations are, are really supportive on the, of the, on the R&D side. Yeah, I mean, we first of all, uh, we wouldn't be here if we didn't get the money from uh, Finnish uh, Business Finland, which is like an innovation fund in, in uh, Finland. So we would have fallen on the first year already, but they supported us with, uh, I'd say, uh, 40% of our funding came from uh, government uh, direct grant on the first year. Like, we really wouldn't be here. And then... Um, then, of course, as you mentioned, this is we- so interesting because you know, in like an American lens, you know, if you're an innovator, you shouldn't accept uh, handouts. You know, so they, so, there are some people who think that there can be no good businesses created if they actually get support. Uh, you know, in the beginning, yeah. it's just two different models of innovation. I find it so interesting because I think this second model of innovation is almost coming back a little with a vengeance. Right? It's so clear to me that there's so much luck in this innovation game that. To give some startups a little bit of a head start isn't necessarily just dumb socialist policy. It could actually be pretty useful. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's it's basically that the way that these things are done in Finland is that uh, that this business Finland organization they don't um, they don't give money unless you have uh, been uh, if if you haven't been gotten an in investment. 
So you might be able to get some like a preparation grant or something like super small. But if you want to apply for any kind of bigger funding as a startup, you need to get first an investment. Yeah, and it's then, a match funding. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that's that's a good model. It's, it's kind of saying that uh, we are respecting that you guys do it in Finland. You're paying taxes anyway. So we will recover this money anyway. And, and our uh, way of kind of like wanting to keep you in Finland, respecting you is to support you on this journey and and support the investors as well so it allows you to have a little bit smaller dilution and and so forth Uho, what is your perspective on this question and i i have talked to a lot of people who are so excited that europe has produced in in fact a, a growing number of unicorns but on the other hand the, the legacy and history and i think the worry of a lot of country uh, politicians, uh, a lot of innovators as well, is that once a company becomes a certain size, unless it's a complete outlier, the temptation is just so incredible to sell the company to some large financial grouping or or tech company, honestly, either in China or in the US. Mm. How do you see, I mean, you don't have to address your individual case, but just in terms of what you see among your peers that are really starting to grow and could potentially become sort of juggernauts in their own emerging or in, indeed create new categories, is it getting easier to convince either governments or large capital sources domestically or within Europe that this is really possible. We, we can really keep this brand here. Uh, and do you see a value in it? Or, or do you just think that, you know, innovation kind of goes where innovation goes and you're not, you know, kind of thinking to, to you know, to, to thoughts about it? I think it's, it's like very interesting question. And, and like I, I've seen so many times during the Nokia and Microsoft, how the acquisitions of companies have basically gone down the train. So when you're integrated into a bigger organization, so first of all, you lose almost instantly whatever um, uh, whatever uh, kind of uh, way of working you used to have. So you're integrated into the new way of doing things and your culture is lost and and you don't have quite the a grasp and, and the ability to control what's going to be happening in the future. And that tends to lead to the to people leaving the new company and, and uh, far too often that integration becoming troublesome. That's not to say that there aren't great examples on, on uh, how that has been successful. And, and sometimes, for example, uh, Supercell, which is one of the Finnish companies doing uh, mobile games and, and um, uh, being, uh, being bought uh, by SoftBank, keeping at that stage completely their independence and later on uh, being uh, moved to a, to a Chinese owner, again, keeping the independence. Those are the great examples of these kind of acquisitions, but there, there are much more of failures in this area. And it's it's... I don't know. It's one of those things that as a startup founder, you're kind of thinking any of these kind of situations with a bit of, of scare. So do you basically lose everything that was created as part of an acquisition? And and it's it's certainly something that we have been thinking from the very get-go of the company that we want to be growing uh, into an uh, independent uh, company and keeping it that way. So. Mm. 
if you will, put your futurist hat on and, and talk to me about the end of this decade. So we've talked about a lot of fairly near-term things. Uh, I've gotten a more granular understanding of the path and, and mm. I've, you know, we've talked through the use cases and they are amazing. But there are also some, some pitfalls along the way. And you know, there are autumns and winters coming to, to every market uh, for lots of different reasons. Where are we in your best estimation at the end of this decade? Yeah. Come when we round 2030 in the consumer and enterprise markets are that's I guess when when you think this training scenario really is going to have completely changed. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, I think that 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 stage uh we are looking that the fourth computing paradigm has happened and uh like using mixed reality technologies is an everyday uh, activity. It doesn't replace the laptops that we use or the phones. Um, they, they, these paradigms tend to always live side by side. I still use command lines that we used to be using in the beginning of the 80s as well. So the paradigms never completely re replace each other. So that's going to be there. But uh, it allows us to uh, really also transform the way that we collaborate together. It's the telepresence of the future is so mind-blowing. The ability to really teleport to a different place, uh, experience ballets and operas and, and really... Um, go to those uh, fantastic wonders of the world at an instant. I think those kind of things are completely changing, like even, even um, middle school training for the kids, let alone these demanding training cases that we have been talking about today. And, and Give I, me a sense of what would happen to uh, the way you and I commu have communicated right now. So what, what could be different? So right now, right? So I'm on a pretty you know, crappy webcam because all the good webcams were sold out. I'm about to transition probably to my DSLR in the back, but yeah. I'm traveling, so I haven't really implemented it. But I'm eventually, as a transitional stage, I think I'm going to start using my DSLR as my webcam because I need a little bit of, uh, you know, of that quality image. But these are very tactical things. And I have increased my audio quality because of my podcast. So uh, you know, right now, because there were blowing leaves, I'm using a dynamic mic, but I have also other mics that are, you know, mm. richer. We are, of course, using a headset, which for me has actually transformed. It's actually just more relaxing because I hear perfect quality audio and I am in a, actually, in a uh, augmented situation, mm. uh, right? Because I could choose to take this off and I would hear more. Anyway, yeah. what would happen at the end of the decade? Would we what is it that we would be able to exchange? How would I be able to experience Vario? I mean, would it be much easier for you to kind of plug me into the factory floor? And, uh, you know, I've, I saw some of the clips, right? You, you sent me a Vimeo video. Mm. Would you be able to mix this in real time? Would I be using a headset? Would we actually be interacting using the headset as a default? Absolutely. Instead of just being on the computer here? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that... Um, when we do the full digitization of each other, you could actually be here in this room together with me, or more likely, I would actually be there in the studio with you because you right. are then in control. Yeah. Then 
we would be fully able to have the uh, eye contact while we speak, which is one of the things that we completely lose in these days of of, uh, of Zoom we do. type of calls. Yeah, that's and, really and annoying. I don't know where to look. I'm trying to look at you, but there's a camera and they're not the same. Yeah, it's yeah, different. exactly. And and uh, these are the things that will uh, definitely make it much more personal than ever. And I, I've been now doing a little bit of alt space. Uh, recently, and and just had a chat with one of my friends who who did a presentation in alt space to a Finnish audience, and and we are like the most introvert people on the planet. So uh, it's like a one of those running jokes. So so uh, what's an extrovert in Finland? And and that's a person who looks at the tips of their uh, shoes. So um, that that's the kind of level that uh, we are acting. And and he was saying that one magical thing happened. So after the presentation where people had been looking at him, he had a contact with everybody, uh, people came and actually talked to him. That had never happened in his life. And he's like a professional presenter, like in Finland. So that never happens. Nobody comes to talk to you. But when you're doing these virtual things, you you lose some of those inhibitions. And and it's it's one of the interesting things that you're actually more naturally having dialogues in these uh, virtual worlds than you are, you are in real life, which is kind of interesting. And now when you take all of these quality factors into the level where when I'm there with you, I'm seeing every single nuance of the leather seats in your uh, couch or whatever. So all of the details being exactly like I'm there with you, but again, being more relaxed than I would with being there myself physically. I think it's it's kind of like interesting. And then, of course, we have the capability to go anywhere, do anything, because in virtual, everything is magic. Wow, that's a compelling image. My only remaining question to you is, how does one track this field? So I obviously have people listening. They mm. are going to learn a lot from this uh, track. But the field is so vast and where do you go to to track this field what do you do to to sort of like you know look at look at what competitors are doing uh find out what the use cases are among your potential new clients uh where do you track this field right now yeah so so uh, like 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 so many people i follow a lot of things in twitter like going through the bus then one of the luxuries uh i have in this field where we don't have yet uh um, a zero-sum game. So, like every every entrepreneur in the VR AR domain thinks that this is a growing segment, and we are not here yet to fight with each other. We are all about improving and increasing this field. That means that uh, when I'm uh, very often discussing with other founders, so we're having Zoom calls like this, and and we do share a lot of the thinking that we are doing, and and that uh, that I think allows me the best way to understand what's happening in the world when I understand the way that other uh, founders are thinking about the world. Well, that's a fantastic stage uh, of an industry to to be in. I uh, commend you for all the great work you've been doing and thank you so much for, for sharing some of it with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. You have just listened to episode 68 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was industrial-grade mixed reality. Our guest was Urho Contori, co-founder and chief product officer of Vario, the mixed reality equipment maker. 
In this conversation, we talk about the future of industrial grade mixed reality, or MR. We discuss the advent of enterprise AR, VR, XR, MR, hybrid reality, and its impact on RR, or real reality. Which companies are using it already? Current professional user types, emerging use cases, and why is Vario so focused on human eye resolution devices and high-risk MR? We discussed adoption timelines and form factors, as well as the remaining technical and market challenges. And we looked into the future of mixed reality five to 10 years ahead. My takeaway is that industrial mixed reality has now come of age. It is only a question of a few years until large swaths of industry and a plethora of professionals will depend on it to do their job. The pandemic could not have come at a bigger inflection point for the industry. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 30 on artificial general intelligence, episode 51 on the AI for learning, episode 16 on perception AI, episode 49 on living the future of work, episode 35 on augmented reality, episode 47 on sci-fi tech, episode 54 on the future of AR, and episode 31 on robotics, futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.